This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. I feel like I've known you for quite some time, and I'll explain. Uh, years ago, many years ago, uh, I would sort of wander into Antoine, Virgin Megastore, or any bookstore that was still operating in Hamra, your book was always on the bookshelf, always. And of course, it's sort of, it's just a, it's a prelude to the conversation, but I think it dates us both quite well, because I thought of myself already as sort of entering adulthood, and this is now going back to 2005, and I just realized the book has been out for 15 years, so time has passed. But I always saw your name, and I always saw the subject of wine, I had two copies, one because it was stolen, so I purchased the second copy and kept it at home. And I know that that book was used so much because the pages were bent and everybody sort of took liberty with that book. And it's not just about wine, it's about Lebanon. And I think it's almost like a, a cultural explanation of, this, of, of Beirut and of Lebanon's history told through wine. The second is, uh, I think this is 2008, maybe even earlier. Um, I was approached by Now Lebanon to write a piece about Wadi Abu Jmil, the reconstruction of downtown, but in particular Wadi Abu Jmil. And I was asked to do an interview with the last Lebanese Jew still living in that neighborhood. I used to know her. I interviewed her and it was published two pieces uh, back to back in Now Lebanon. And I knew your name through Now Lebanon and through wine. And just your name was always in the background. Then executive magazine, and then on occasion, sort of these other outlets, I'd see your name talking about wine and Lebanon. So it's only fitting that you are part of this movie, Wine and War. Um, I'm honored that I got to see it beforehand and I watched it several times. And I'm, I'm thrilled that we can explore wine, we can explore war, and we can explore Lebanon together. Let me begin though, before we jump into the beautiful story, I think, of, of wine and Lebanese history and how wine sort of is interwoven in that history. I would like your personal reflection on where we are at the moment in terms of the politics and the economics and the, the crisis that sort of engulfed Lebanon, engulfed, I think, our, our story as well, that we're sort of, uh, we're, we're going through probably the most difficult time in recent memory, and I think it's going to last for the near future. And the reason I'm asking you is because, um, well, I, I like exploring these subjects with journalists. I know you were a journalist, and I think you offered that kind of perspective. You're, you're a bit sort of, you're able to date, uh, date us and date yourself back to previous episodes of trying to change things in Lebanon that ultimately failed. And this sort of 
goes back to March 14, 2005. This goes back to the post-war generation that saw many things that saw many things that were hopeful, but ultimately fading. And now we've reached uh, the bottom. So your instinctual, perhaps emotional perspective on where we are and where you see things moving in, in the near future. Um, well, first of all, before I continue, I want to thank you very much for that very generous and very kind introduction. Um, uh, you too, have, your, your name has also been on my radar. Um, <laughs> I've, I've, I've always known about you and heard about you. And, uh, and of course, I have to say at this point that I respected your father um, a great deal. But in the 25 years, the nearly 25 years that I spent in Lebanon when I came back from uh, having grown up and been educated and lived in the UK, when I came back to Lebanon after the war, after my father um, died, I feel that um, that episode, that period in Lebanon's history has been bookended by, uh, by financial tension, mm. let's say. Um, the only difference being is that I don't think that Lebanon at the end of the civil war which saw, in the day I arrived in Beirut in 19, end of 91, the, 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 the dollar cost 800 Lebanese pounds. And that was very traumatic. And I was paid, I got a job teaching at the American University and I got paid $300 a month. And we had to have our salary subsidized because they didn't know what was going on with the, right. with the dollar exchange yes. rate. Yeah. Um, by September of that year, it was nudging 3,000, and we thought that was a catastrophe. The government of Omar Karami had been, over, been toppled, let's say, in, I think, May of that year, and they were rioting in the streets, and tires were burning, and so on. And then at the end of that, at the, in September, I think, Rafi Hariri swaggered into town, um, and everything was, we all thought everything would be okay. And it was, it was okay. So that's one bookend. Mm -hmm. The other bookend is the end of a year ago, if you want. Yeah, yeah. 2019. And I remember thinking, looking back to 2005 and remembering what we achieved then. And I still look back at 2005 and it still makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up because I thought that what we'd achieved was something quite special. But I was looking at what was happening last year in Beirut and I thought, you guys, and I was back in England, I thought, you guys really are on the cusp of history. You are finishing off what we tried to start with 2005, the Cedar Revolution, um, with the, all the efforts of the March 14 movement to really, with, with all the, you know, it was a warts and all movement. We didn't pretend that our leaders were perfect, yeah. but they understood that Lebanon, Lebanon A could not exist under the threat of violence. Yes. And with, yes. The, with the elephant in the room that was Hezbollah's state within the state, and that it needed to be predicated on prosperity. And 
We've seen then that the pigeons came home to roost in 2019, the banking sector collapsed, which it didn't do during the Civil War, and this is right. crucial. I right. Think. I, think, I think, as Yusuf Baidas, the great Palestinian banker in the 60s, said, Lebanon is to money what the Suez Canal is to shipping. <laughs> and I think, and, I, I, and soon, the moment we stop being that, and let's face it, we stopped being that a long time ago, but the banking sector was still, is still crucial. Yes. Once that goes, then one of the very pillars of, of Lebanon goes as well. So I think we had a three-stage catastrophe in the last year. We've had the, we had the Thawra, we had the economic crisis that followed in the wake, of that, we have the pandemic, which really, I mean, we had one hand tied behind our back anyway. And this, you know, I'm thinking about the, the Lebanese wine industry, which we'll come to, I'm sure, you know, they were saying, right, well, we now have to have to focus on exports. With the pandemic, they couldn't even export anything. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then I remember at the end of July, beginning of August, really just before the explosion, talking to a friend of mine, and he said, you know, what else can go wrong? Here. What else can what else can really happen? And yes, it happened. So I think I think these three incidents, these three brutal incidents, and the trauma which August fourth has inflicted upon the Lebanese people, combined with the utter barefaced, shocking, call it what you will, disregard for the welfare of the Lebanese people by the political class has yeah. left me speechless, has left me utterly, utterly speechless. Now, I am very aware that I'm talking from the comfort of the United Kingdom. I, I wasn't in Lebanon in the initial stages of, of the revolution. I wasn't, thank God, I wasn't in East Beirut on August the 4th. So, I have to temper my, my, my anger by reminding myself that I'm not there. So I don't really have a, a full hands-on understanding of what's happening. But looking at it from afar, I am utterly, utterly flabbergasted. Um, and remember, in the 25 years that I, that I lived in Lebanon, we had, well, we had the end of the Civil War, we had inflation, we had a couple of very nasty security incidents involving Israel, 96 in particular, we had, um, we, we, we had, you know, the part of the south of Lebanon was occupied. This was a country that really was, um, was damaged. Um, and then we had, you know, 2005, the assassinations, we had the attempted coup of 2008, we had the war in 2006, we had the Syrian civil war. I mean, all these, all these body blows Yes, if you want, culminating in the initially optimistic revolution of last year, and then the decline. I, I appreciate this long view, and I think uh, it's always, in a way, it's reflective of putting things somewhat in perspective. That this is not. There's several things here. This is not the first time people have gone to the street demanding change, although it's the most dramatic experience so far, at least in my, my memory of enough people willing to push. 
but it's not the first time. It's not the first disappointment. And I also appreciate this. You're in a way you're pointing at the things that kept Lebanon together in the last, perhaps since its independence, talking about the banking sector, one of those pillars you mentioned, tourism was the other one. And even after the 2006 war with Israel, I mean, by two, three years, New York Times is listing Beirut as the number one tourism destination. And this is after the May 2008 conflict as well, between sort of Hezbollah's takeover of, of most of Beirut. And tourism was sort of sturdy enough to, 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 to survive. Um, even, even days before the July 2006 war, the World Cup, tourism record in Lebanon. So that, that, was, that was still sort of withstanding. But as you just said, I mean, even that other pillar, which is so important to Lebanon's economy, with or without tension, with or without crises, COVID in many ways has prevented Lebanese from coming home. The natural sort of tourism diaspora that comes back every year. So you have everything going wrong in such a short period of time. And then we sort of reaching what seems to be the end of the road. But at that end of the road, at least from my side, there is something that seems to survive. And its survivability is quite startling. It's the entrepreneurial spirit of Lebanon that somehow has always withstood time. And I think the wine industry is, is sort of, it, it's in that orbit. But it's not just wine. I mean, Lebanese take their skills, they flourish even during times of crises, and they will flourish, I think, in Lebanon as time passes, but, but they're shining abroad for the moment. And you can't really get rid of that. That's sort of, uh, that's permanent. And maybe that's a, that's a fitting way to jump into at least the wider theme of the movie. And Wine and War, the initial minutes of the film there's a breathtaking drone scene, which I have no idea how you did this, but it's masterfully done, where it's the story of, of Lebanese trade, if you will. And it's a gradual approach to the coast. It's so well done. There's this fog, and out of the fog comes the coast. And beyond the coast is Lebanon. And within a few meters is one of the oldest Phoenician, I believe, Phoenician dwellings. And within that, there's wine. What is order? The wine. Or humanity. Because the fruit was there, the juice was there. If the juice dig on the ground, it will ferment. That will become wine. So wine made the circuit for humans. When humanity started understanding wine, instead of being nomads, where they would take their sheep, and they would have their wheat, and they would move to another place, wine forced them to settle. This is why we started civilization. this film mostly filmed prior to COVID or is or are parts of it done during COVID itself? No, no, no. The film was made between 2013 and 2018. 
we spent the last two years oh. trying to find funding to get it through post-production. That scene at Tel Burak you were talking about was filmed in the summer of 2017. I see, I see. Okay, well, that, that explains many things because I was wondering how you could pull this off during COVID and everything that was happening. Okay, so it's been filmed over a few years. Let, let's start there though, let's start there. Uh, how important is that aspect of our history today in terms of showing the, maybe the importance of Lebanon? In, in many things, in history, uh, in, in, in wine, in culture, in diversity, and in robustness in terms of withering many storms, and also, also maybe this sort of Lebanese collective identity that we should really cherish what we're good at. And we're among the first to find a way to trade wine. So let, let's start there. And maybe your own personal thoughts on that. Is wine maybe undersold in our history? Is it something that we should sort of elevate to the forefront rather than just talking about archaeology and, and that stuff, that wine is not really as central as it should be? And is there a way to kind of elevate it and make it more, more central to at least how we perceive ourselves and the role of Lebanon over time? Okay, there are two things, uh, two things I want to address. First of all, uh, wine in our history is hugely important in the sense that the Phoenicians by being the first trading empire, uh, gave the gift of wine to the then known world. Wine was originally made in the Caucasus, uh, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Armenia. The culture of the vine drifted down to the Levantine coast. But if, if the Phoenicians had not been the traders that they were, that wine would have just stayed on the beach, as it were. But, but, right. but we, we, we put it in jars, we put it on boats, and we traded it. So yes. we were the first wine merchants. But more importantly, this film is about the Lebanese identity, mm. the Lebanese um, impulse to travel, to find a better way of life, to be more prosperous. And mm. I remember sitting on that beach at Tal el-Burak with, with Dr. Helen Sadr, from the American University of Beirut, and she was telling me, said, even the Phoenicians left from this beach, and it was a very kind of, oh, God, I'm even thinking about it now, it's really making the hairs on my back. back <laughs> she said, from this beach, they would have set sail to seek better economic opportunities abroad because there were none here, yes. because they were always under occupation or political or or under the political thumb of one or another civilization. Right. So, right. so to, to suddenly understand that we've always had to go abroad was a kind of sense of epiphany for me. Right. And I think that was what we wanted to do in the film is to pay homage to the Lebanese businessman, whoever he may be, maybe the winemaker, the banker, the car, the car importer, or even the corner shop owner, or even the guy in Dearborn who's got a hardware store mm. and he had to travel there and to seek a better life for his family and he opened a restaurant or a hardware store or anything that they do. This film is a, is a tribute to that spirit. And um, it's an amazing story. It's an incredible story. And the story in a way is, is poetic at times. And I'm, I'm not gonna give too much away, but I will say that there is a main, there, there's a central character to the story, Serge Houchard, 
I think his story is fantastic. I think it's, I couldn't think of a better character to narrate the, the, the recent history and go back in time. And he is, he's quite the character. And I love the way he tells you things like, you know, I'm going to speak on my terms. I have control over the narrative now. Uh, it's fantastic. I, I, I would never be able to do that. And he pulls it off with so much charm. I want you to speak slowly, clearly, in order to allow my brain to get the real sense of what you are intending to get from me. Okay. Got it? Got it. Okay, good. Serge, when you remember your childhood... Yeah, I told you how to speak loudly because I don't hear. But I want you to speak slowly and loudly on purpose. I'm pushing you. I'm squeezing you. I'm cornering you. You know why? Because by cornering you, I, I can abuse your brain my way. Okay? Okay. I think he's key to keeping the Lebanese wine industry in a way international during the war. And, and let, let's start with his story. And it's Chateau Mouzard, if I'm not mistaken. That's his sort of, his legacies oh. there. And that there's many, many scenes in the movie where there's, in a way, finding how to get wine from Al-Ba'ah to Saida, shipping it to Junier, to Ghazir. And then his story, he leaves and he's sort of, he's pitching Lebanese wine abroad. And this is at a time that Lebanese wine was not so well known beyond Lebanon. Is he, in a way, is he the beginning of the international recognition of Lebanese wine? Is he sort of the first, in a way, the first story that could be sold abroad? Well, I think, I think you're right in the sense that Serge was the first person to really... Well, Serge planted the Lebanese flag on the world wine map. Hmm. Um, I think people who knew about wine had a vague understanding that wine came from came from the Near East and the Caucasus. But at a time when Bordeaux was wine, at a time before California, before Australia, before New Zealand, before, you know, I mean, even Spain and Italy, Lebanon wasn't on anyone's radar. And yeah. Serge... Was, was discovered. Serge's wines were discovered at the Bristol Wine Fair in 1979 and championed by a gentleman called Michael Broadbent, who has also uh, passed away earlier, th earlier this year, uh, sadly. And, but Serge, what Serge's magic was, he was, he had, an, he, had, he had an innate understanding of the British sense of fair play and the, the British love of the underdog. Yes. And uh, he realized that if he could tell a story about how he made his wine literally under the guns of all the armies that, that were in Lebanon at the time, knowing the fact that the British loved his rather esoteric style of wine, then he realized that he had a quite a, that he, that he had a, that he was onto something. Um, and he was so much onto something that Decanter Wine Magazine made him their first man of the year uh, in 1984. So Lebanon landed in people's consciousness through the wines of Chateau Mouzard. I think I say in the film that it was almost as when you, when you opened a bottle of Mouzard in London or in Paris, whatever, and you pulled the cork, there was that whiff of conflict. And, yes, exactly, um, yeah. And, and he was brilliant. 
he was brilliant at telling a story. Now, there were others who were doing exactly the same thing who didn't tell their story. And I think in the film, while we had to focus on Serge because he, he is the, if you want, the box office guy, we wanted to tell other stories because, and this goes back to the, 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 the DNA of the Lebanese businessman, yeah. is that they are the masters of crisis management and in any situation, they will find a way to do business, to get around any problem. And uh, Michel de Bustros was doing it, uh, Pierre Brun was doing it, uh, Jean-Pierre Sara at Chateau Sara was doing it. Yes. They were all risking their lives. Only Serge knew that he had a story to tell. He was a great marketeer. So yeah, I mean, we, the Lebanese wine industry owes him a huge debt of gratitude. Talk about the best branding for Lebanese, uh, Lebanese history and Lebanese wine in a time of conflict. And 1979, I can imagine this is a hard sell. You know, make Lebanese wine important, if you will, while Lebanon is collapsing. And I, I su such, a, such a charming human being. And somebody who's in a way, maybe more on the eccentric, uh, eccentric side is, I, I, his name is Eve Murad. I think his first name was E. Um, Eve, yes. Quite, quite a character, and he's uh, he looks like he survived the storm literally, physically. He's, <laughs> I mean, he just came out of a hurricane. And you know, when he's talking at the beginning, he reminds me of, of many, many, uh, in a way, many Lebanese characters that I've met over the years that are so dedicated and at the same time have perhaps lost a bit of their minds over, over time. <laughs> أنا كان أحب كثير بوم ماريا بهذيك الأيام، حطيت بوم ماريا على الأخير وخمرت للأخير و... وهيك بسموها لليوم بوب، اسمي بوب. <تصفيق> I mean that story is incredible. He gets kidnapped, taken to Israel, has to, I think the Israelis call his mom and they say, we have your son and that's it. Just a quick seconds, they hang up the phone. He's sent back to France and a day later, He's on his way back to Lebanon. I enjoyed watching him drink wine. I actually, I think I was sort of lured into him. It's almost like he has so much to say and he's only giving you just enough. And he kind of, I think he says it at the, it's sort of towards the end of the conversation. He says, I could talk to you for days on end, you know, and I, I would listen to him days on end. What you see in the film is a lunch that became dinner. I see. No so. interruption. So we were there drinking for about 13 hours and it was all filmed. <laughs> so, you know, wow. I mean, when you're making a film, you know, to get, to get, let's say half an hour onto, onto the actual film, you sometimes have got to film 10, 15 hours. So that's a whole full day of his storytelling. A whole day and the camera wasn't turned off. That's incredible. I, this must have been a, this must have been an editing accomplishment, if you will, just trying to get the the right moments. Because I I'll say this just from my side, I would have I could I could listen to him for fifteen hours. I, I could watch him speak for fifteen hours. So well done in terms of getting what you needed from him. But he's he's a thrill to watch. 
He's not an easy guy, actually. No. <laughs> you know what? You're right. As safe, safety from being an audience, just sort of watching him. Yeah, maybe he's better on the TV screen or on the laptop. Not. In... <laughs> but he. Yeah, he runs his own show. Um, but but you know it was a, it, it was it was a wonderful it was a wonderful twelve hours and yeah that was it. He's magic to watch. He's incredible. There's also a very very touching scene. With uh, with Father Joseph, uh, Father Joseph Fahed, and the reason I say touching is because it's entering, I think, a world that I would never ever see in my own eyes. This sort of very intimate conversation that he's having among fellow monks, if I'm not mistaken, that they're all listening to him, and it's an incredibly done scene. This is very intimate, and I'm even impressed that you were able to get access to that kind of moment where he's touching on the religious divisions that engulfed him, that engulfed Lebanon. He's speaking directly to us, all types of Lebanese that fought each other and now live with each other in difficult ways. And uh, I think his voice should be heard more and more. Believe that that spirit of reconciliation and unity does still exist among all faiths. I think it's so beyond our control, anyway. But it is it is rather depressing to see an older man, a religious man, talking about the mistakes we made before, and then we have similar mistakes being done in 2020. This is half a century of time as well. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's unfortunate that the words of wisdom are now being heard by a monk in, in the mountains of Lebanon and not on the streets of Beirut. But I love that scene. It's so well done and it's so intimate and he's very persuasive. And I also enjoyed the conversations with, uh, with Neila Bitar about, about growing up, the daughter of a general, in the Lebanese army. And she says something which is quite, quite fun. She says, you know, my father taught me how to shoot. And then she gets very, very sort of detailed. My father was a general in the Lebanese army. And I looked up at him like my hero, my hero at the age of 11. He put a gun in my hands and he said, it's gonna send you back a little, but you try to, to, to stay as firm as you can and you shoot in the middle. It's like if you are shooting somebody between the eyes. You got it? I said, yes, dad, I'm gonna do my best. It's also the strength of a woman, I think, not just in entrepreneurial skill and, and business, not that, just the, the sturdiness, the robustness of a Lebanese woman. She's, she can shoot a gun and she can also do things on her terms. And I thought that sort of reflected the moment quite well, that that's what we saw. Going back to the initial part of our conversation that Lebanese were in droves pushing, women were part of that story, not just part, in in a way central to the story. And I like that this is somebody from a slightly older generation showing us that this is not something new. There are many Lebanese women that have been doing this for many years. And I I love her take on things. It's almost like um, the discipline that is maybe missing sometimes and not in a, not in a bad way, but in a good way that 
Lebanon can do many things if we just focused a bit. And I like that background with her father. Her cameo in that film was utterly beguiling. I thought she was she was star quality. I mean, really, she was amazing. She held the camera really well. And yes. you're not the first person to have focused on on her, you know, relatively small part in the film, but she was she was utterly beguiling. Yes. Um, and uh, yes, no, I agree. Um, I think the Saadi's story, in a way, justifies the raison d'etre of the film. Hmm. Lebanon, Syria, as far as I'm concerned, we are almost one people in a way that we are people of the Levant. Um, there are differences, of, of course, but, but I think we are similar enough to, to make, to, do, to say, if you want, that whatever, whatever life or the world throws at us, we will get around it somehow. And this is what I was talking about earlier, is the crisis management skills yes. of yeah. the Lebanese, of the Syrians. I think when it comes to these inherent, inherent assets, we, we are the same. Being from Syria and Lebanon, we could actually do wine in both countries, because let's not forget that doing wine and planting a vineyard is also a statement of um, of implanting yourself on a very long term. When you plant a vine, I think you're saying, I'm here to stay. If the Phoenicians had to travel to get out from under the political um, thumb of the Assyrians and the Lebanese were under Ottoman rule for 400 years. And then we had to travel to, to make our fortune during the early years of the 20th century because of famine and war and upheaval and so on. And then during the civil war, Serge Hosha and his generation of, of winemakers did what they did. And now, well, in 2006, Ramsey and Sami Grussen, Yes. demonstrated their resilience. Yes. And in 2011 onwards, the Saadi who planted the vineyard in Syria thinking that would be the safe option and right. that the, yeah. the, the risky option would be Chateau Marcias, which they own in the, in the Bekaa. They never thought that there'd be a civil war in, 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 in Syria. Yes. And right. yet they didn't pass an eyelid. They carried on and they have continued to make vintage after vintage after vintage even during the fighting and their inability to get to their vineyard. It's just one continuous narrative arc of bloody-mindedness and resilience. You know, but and, and the way it's done, it's I, I love the, the symmetry because you mentioned the uh, Sami and Remzi Hussan of Masaya. Mm -hmm. And so there's that 2006 war aspect where he refuses to leave. He simply says, no, I'm going to stay. People who look at the grim aspect of war only will never get out of it. People should look at the positive aspect of war. And this is entrenched deeply 
in the Lebanese culture. We have to make the best of every single day. We have to, to be thankful and to make every day an opportunity to learn something and to advance and to become stronger. I don't care. I'm still here and I'm, I'm more, I'm assuming I'm going to die here if I need to. Yeah. And he nearly did. And he nearly did. Right. So there's that scenes of conflict in Lebanon. And then we're sort of there's this way of portraying the war in Syria, that it's not the same war, but we're engulfed in conflict and they're engulfed in conflict, but we share a purpose. And I like that almost, it almost in a sense dislodges the politics from the story and a universal theme emerges. And I, and I mean, absolutely, it's, it's, I mean, they're just a few kilometers away from the border. So it's not like a distant land. It's more or less the same story. But since the politics gets so sensitive, it's so well done in that, forget who you're supporting, forget what side you're on. We're all sharing the same conflict together. And then you have these winemakers, wine producers that are surviving. And I, I really love that. I think the Ghusan, the... Um, I guess it's Ramzi Ghassan who shares a lot in, 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 in the movie. You can see it that he's in a way, he's determined, but he's also sore from the conflict. And, and I really enjoyed the, there's scenes almost like of, of quietness when he's speaking that he perhaps a determination. Amazing interview. Yeah, and, and you can, can sense the suffering that there's something there that's, it's a very emotional uh, part of the, the movie. And, there's also a, a cameo by, and you know, I, did, I never knew what she looked like, the author of Eat, Pray, Love. It's Elizabeth Gilbert. Uh, yes. Yeah, I, just, I, I know the book. I've seen the book everywhere. And then I'm like, who is this? She doesn't look Lebanese. Oh, Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> the author of Eat, Pray, Love. The thing that I always think of about Serge is that line of his about how a human being encountering a wine that is living, which is what he always spoke about, as you know, you know, that, um, that, that in order for something to be great, it had to have life in it. It didn't have to necessarily taste good or taste bad. It was beyond that. It was about, was this made with love? Was this made with life? Does it still contain life? Does it inspire you to life? All of this was about this sense of livingness as opposed to being shut down and, and checked out. I enjoyed her way of sharing the story with Serge, with Serge Hoshar, that he's telling her to take it easy enjoy the bottle and take your time with it. And this is not a 30 minute endeavor. And I really love the way she's describing it. She's saying, I can tell you what it tastes like within an hour. And Serge says, we need a whole day before we can talk about this. That is history. That is coming from a place where, you know, you need patience to understand the full story. And may I just ask, how did you, sort of get involved with her and how did you approach her on the subject? And, and in a way, it's quite astounding that the author of a well-celebrated book has her own personal intimate moment with a Lebanese wine maker, wine producer. So how did that come about? I don't know whether it was before she received, she had the global fame from Eat, oh. Pray, Love, but she was a, she was commissioned by Oh, God, was it? I think it was GQ. Mm. Could have been GQ or Esquire. I can't remember. 
Um, I'm thinking GQ. Um, and they sent her to Lebanon to meet Serge Hoshaw and I to see. do a feature on Chateau Mouza. So that's a conversation they had in Lebanon yes. together. I see. She came for about a week. Wow. She came for a week. And I think Serge, I mean, Serge, he won't mind me saying this. He was a ladies' man. He loved, <laughs> he loved women so much. I'm not saying that he misbehaved, but he just loved their company. When you walked into a room with a, with a wine writer from the UK, and I said, Serge, I'd like you to meet. And he was already up from his desk, getting up. <laughs> and you cease to exist. Okay. Right. Yeah. So I can imagine that he had this glamorous American woman turning up on his doorstep in Beirut. And he pulled out all the stops. Okay. And in a, it, it was amazing because the article that she wrote, I think he got six pages in GQ. I mean, oh, wow. a, Lebanese, a Lebanese winemaker in his 60s at the time yeah. gets six pages in GQ. I that's mean, that, that is, that's testament to his box office uh, box yes. office appeal. And I think that he, well, it's, I mean, it, it's obvious from the film, he, he made an impact on her. He made a profound impression on her. And then when, when he died... Uh, there was a memorial service for him in New York in 2015. And we got her there. So Serge Sorry. passed away in 2015? He passed away on New Year's Eve 2014. 2014. I see. Okay, so... He, yes. He drowned while on holiday in Acapulco. Oh, I did, okay, this I did not in the know. Film, in the film, you have Michael Broadbent said he went for a walk on the beach and yeah. wasn't seen again. You know, I, I when I saw the turtle leaving, I'm thinking, I'm guessing this is in Sur, probably, or so, somewhere where there's still turtles doing this on the coast, yeah. that I assumed that there was a moment where he just passed away on the beach. I did not know that this was a drowning. And I, yeah. that's, yeah, wow. Yeah, he was on holiday with his family in Acapulco and he got into trouble. And well, no one knows, but he went for a swim and he didn't come back and they found him a couple of hours afterwards. Wow. I, well, there, it's worth saying, uh, there's a moment in the film where if somebody like me, somebody amateur like me, who doesn't know much about wine or even the, 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 the faces of Lebanese wine, it is sort of, it is a, it's a, it's, it's a nicely done transition where people are speaking about him in the past, past tense. And I think it really starts with her, with Elizabeth Gill. I, I think that's the moment where we suddenly know that he's no longer with us. But added to what you're saying about radiating when, when a woman enters the room, I mean, he's radiating with you too. He's radiating by default and i i think every scene with him there's almost he has he's he's cunning in a way with his language and it's i i think I, what you're saying about box office appeal he is the movie 
He really is. And I, I, I think I stayed into it, really appreciating it because of that story. And you're able to film this before his passing. And in a way, it's a, it's a tribute to him. And I, I love that. I just want to wrap it up, Michael, with, uh, in a way, in a sense, the way the story wraps up, which is we're leaving a Lebanon that's very different from the post-war years that we know. It's clearly a completely different country than pre-Civil War. And our history is intact. Maybe the spirit will prevail. But uh, it's almost leaving everything, sort of taking a step back and saying, this may end up being, uh, we may end up with a completely different country long-term that's unrecognizable. And I mean this in the good and bad. And I'd like to focus on the good, which is the identity. And that's really at the core of the movie. Do you think that despite everything that's happening, despite the blasts, despite the economic crisis, despite the political gridlock and the geopolitics, which are brought up in the story and everything that could go wrong to a very small country, do you think a Lebanese identity is finally born today? That there is something about being Lebanese that didn't exist before. And myself growing up in Lebanon, carrying the Lebanese flag was a political statement. In 2005, putting a Lebanese flag on your balcony was in itself a political statement. The word Lebanese never really sunk in, I think, properly. And today it feels like it has, that we can all agree that there is a, there is a nation and there's an identity, there's a shared history, and it might finally be coming to fruition a hundred years after Greater Lebanon was proclaimed. Do you think that's settled in? And, and that something like wine or any subject that is central to our past will also be central to our present, that we can be proud of where we are and who we are, and how we came about, and that's something that's uh, it's uncontested today. I think, I've, well, I've always maintained that Lebanon has never been one thing at any one time. There's never been a, 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 a seamless narrative arc about this thing that is, that is, that is Lebanon. Lebanon has shifted, um, it's shape-shifted, if you want, <laughs> according, to the, according to the regional impulses or the, the regional tectonic plates. Um, it will be a different country than it was a year ago. It was a different country a year ago than it was maybe 30 years before that. And it was a different country 30 years before that. But some things remain constant. And this is what I take, mm. this is what I take hope from. Mm. Our identity, our national spirit, our character, our ability to, to, to make money anywhere on the planet, if we have to, our ability to not be scared of traveling anywhere and settling down and making a new start if we have to. Yes. Um, our love of company and friends and family. Right. Our love of food. And why not throw in wine as well? <laughs> and Ara. Always throw in Ara at the end, right? Just to make sure it's always there. Definitely. The yeah. I have to tell you something. Arak is one of the oldest spirits in the world. It was the first spirit. It is the granddaddy of, of all the great eau de vies of the, of the Mediterranean. So not only did we 
we gave the gift of wine to the world. We gave, we gave the Mediterranean basin a great spirit because France and all these other crazy little eau de vies from, from the Balkans and so on. You so know, we've yeah. got a great legacy when it comes to alcohol, which is ironic, given that we're in the Arab world. And our food is fantastic and we're fantastic. And I think we will always endure, even if the country um, shifts and changes. That's a nice way of saying it, I think, that there is some common, there, there's, there's, there's a thread that persists. And I, I agree, Lebanon will be unrecognizable down the road, the way it's always shifted over time. But there are things that, that, that survive. And uh, going back just a bit to Ada, you know, I, you mentioned the Balkans. I mean, you go to Greece, they call it, I think, Uzo. You go to Bosnia, they call it Rakia. You go to France, they call it Pestis. But every time you say Ada, they look at you and it's like, what is that? Like, no, no, no. What is that? <laughs> we invented this, not you guys. So I, I like that there's something else. We should be proud of that too. Absolutely. Michael, you're very generous with your time, and I hope we can do a follow-up down the road about this about this subject and other subjects as well. And uh, again, congratulations on this film. It's it's a wonderful story, and I look forward to seeing it without my private access to the film later. I would just like to add that all the proceeds from the film are going to the St. George Hospital, to the pediatric unit at the St. George Hospital. Excellent. And sorry, Michael, when when does when does the film come out? Is there it's oh, out. it's it's out. So now it can be accessed. Okay. Absolutely. And the details box, I'll include a link and people can watch the movie and, and donate accordingly. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>